welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Evelyn Lee, FAIA, as my guest here today on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Evelyn is the first ever senior experience designer at Slack Technologies, founder of Practice of Architecture, and co-host on the podcast Practice Disrupted. She has also had many of our Mancini folks on there as well over the past two seasons. Evelyn received her Bachelor of Architecture degree in 2002 from Drury University, where she minored in global studies while playing on the women's soccer team. In 2003, she received her Master's of Architecture degree from SciArc, and most recently in 2012, Evelyn finished a dual MPA, which is a Master's of Public Administration, and MBA, which is a Master of Business Administration in Sustainable Management. Lots of schooling. Evelyn also wrote a monthly column for Contract Magazine for over three years, and now is a frequent contributor to Architect Magazine. She has received numerous industry awards, including the 2016 40 Under 40 Award for Building Design and Construction. I actually received that in 2013. I had to go back and look. I'm older. Uh, and Following in, closely behind. That's right. And in 2014, the AIA National Young Architects Award. She currently serves as the first ever female treasurer on the AIA National Board from 2020 to 2021. Evelyn has nearly 20 years working with individuals and companies who are interested in applying design thinking to their design decision-making process, and she has been featured many times in almost all the well-known events, such as the AIA National Convention, Dwell on Design, and many others. And most importantly, she is a wife of a Special Forces veteran and a mother of two children. Evelyn, I'm sure I missed a bunch here because you do so much. Thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. I'm surprised I gave you my long bio. I'm sorry. No, 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 not at all. That's awesome. Um, So, you know, I'm actually really curious. uh, Where was your husband uh, stationed with the Special Forces? What's his name? Uh, So his name is Ryan Natolka, and he was mainly based in Asia. So we met after um, he retired from the special forces and business school. Okay. Wow. So I was not a part of his life while he was going through that. Okay. But um, yes. Wow. Amazing. Well, thank him for his service for us, please. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in, in reading your bio, you're FAIA. So I'm, I'm curious about that because you're young with the FAIA status. Um, I always yes. think of that as like the super old architect thing, kind of end of career. How did how did that come about for you? So technically, you can apply for fellowship ten years after. So just two things: you have to have received your license, and you have to have been a full time AIA member. Um, so ten years after receiving your license and upgrading your membership to to AIA from associate AIA, you're eligible to apply for fellowship. Um, so I think a lot of people 
do look at it like a, a career end or on that, you know, that side of the career spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the but the funny thing is kind of if you look at the I don't I don't think it's officially called mission or values, but if you look at what the College of Fellows is trying to do, it's it's ongoing. It, they actually encourage all of their fellows to continue to be mentors um, and really continue to raise the profession and educate those that are following them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I see it kind of as a, as a point in time, and and this is just like a, an ongoing call of service back to the profession to continue to teach and engage the future and and in my case hopefully change things going forward. Yeah, no, absolutely. That that that's awesome. So, yeah, I guess I didn't really I never really read through the actual rules of it. I just kind of assumed and knowing so many of the you know, fellows it's it seems to be later on in in their career. So, that that's interesting. They're encouraging so, oh, go ahead. younger people to pursue it more. Um so if you Makes are, sense. you know, if you're eligible I'll help you put your hat in. So, <laughs> all right, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So let's kind of jump right into it. Um, if you had to pick one thing, uh, what annoys you about your fellow architects? Oh, how we complain about everything, but then we don't do anything about it. Ah, good answer. Is that too general? <laughs> I like that. No, no, no. That's perfect. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's very true. more specifically. Like, if you want to get specific like more about how we complain about everything we've given away and how we don't do anything to kind of reclaim any of that space or pursue anything new. Interesting. So that's come up many times here on this podcast. Um, Things like giving away project management, even the project managers that I've had on have said, you've given away project management. Uh, Or the engineers have said, you've given away lighting design, you've given away, you know, even just basic computation in in some of the, the, you know, mechanical systems and things that you used to do. So it's absolutely, absolutely true. Yeah, but then my 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 follow up question is like, okay, then what are we going to do about it? And no one ever has a response. Yeah, to that. yeah, absolutely, I agree. I, I think well, we'll get into technology later, but I think that's where we can we can start start to bring some of that back. Um, so you know, uh, in in your opinion, what what do architects do really well, and and what do they do wrong, and what what's kind of broken with the process? So I think I, I, I've always felt that architects excel at two things. We're, we're, and I apply this to what I do too, even though I don't tra- like practice traditionally, right? We're systems thinkers, right? We can, we look at the entire system. We can kind of understand all the moving pieces and how they need to go together to, to create some type of unity going forward. So whether that's the design of a business and operation system, which is where I tend to be, or a building, um, we have that ability to think think big and still implement against that. The, the other thing is I think we're, we're implementers. Like, you know, I worked as a strategy consultant for a long time. Uh, and the role that I was playing there isn't dissimilar from some of the workplace strategy and consultant that even, you know, the McKenzie's and the Baines and the Deloitte's do. But the joke is that you, you go into these organizations and your strategy consultant and their, their strategy always gets shelved. Um, but I was lucky enough to really be a part of organizations where I got to help through implementation. So if you think about 
from a building perspective, we always implement, even if it's a single prototype, we still implement. So I think those are our two biggest strengths. But that was only part of your question. What was your the other half again? You have to remind me. <laughs> Just in terms of the process, what do you what do you think is broken with the with the process of you know whether that's engaging an architect or whether that's the, how the architect works through the process with a with a client or or into construction. Um. Okay, so I might I might step this out one more micro, and I I would say that there's there's this there's this weird competitive nature that we have in the profession that is really stopping us from growing as fast as we can, and from like being building like bringing together our collective minds to to problem solve um, some of some of the things that. Uh, we could do right. Like I, I literally worked at a firm where they had everyone who entered sign an NDA before they entered into the space. Um, like, you know, and I don't know if it's built out of studio culture because I hear studio culture is a lot more collaborative these days, but there's just like a lack of sharing even within firms sometimes, which is really sad, but especially just across the the profession that I think would move us like along so much quicker. Um, and 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 like make us more agile and make us more adaptable in the end. Yeah, we've talked about some other the like IDP processes or you know engineers working a little bit more closely with the architect directly and really being true team members. And I, I agree. I think that's where we lack. And and yes, within the firms, uh, I, at least my experience is we work very collaboratively on projects. And although you can have you know studios that don't talk to one another, right? Or there's an alienation. We've suffered from that at my own firm where, um, you know, the the base building studio feels disconnected or not a part of the interior studio. So we try to do a good job of mixing interior designers and, you know, architects all together. Uh, my experience has been that an interior designer can pretty much do anything that an architect can do uh, and vice versa, right? So by kind of doing it all in the same team and mixing those roles up, uh, especially if it's managing a project, I mean, the, the, the processes are pretty much the same. And yes, there's specialties and all of that sort of stuff. But an integrated team like that really begins to solve those communication problems for sure. Yeah, I mean, I would say that um, I, I've seen firms where project managers are hoarding their their detail libraries, <laughs> right? They don't like they won't even share it across the firm, which is really tragic. Um, I think that's the most tragic. But I also, you know, I've we've had a lot of conversations with people that have moved into the tech space, and I'm in the tech space now. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole notion of open source and code, like let's flip it and let's put all let's put the detail libraries out right <laughs> to, yeah. to the public if you've solved something that's really unique like why make another architect struggle through the same thing that you did to to solve it um let's let's share it so we can all move faster quicker yeah absolutely we had christine from building um was it building fight science club building, building science systems fight club. Yeah, yeah. yeah and i mean that's her whole thing is she's putting out the details that work right hey these are why they don't work this is why they do work and please use them because it's just right. better for everybody so I want to switch gears because I'm I'm fascinated by culture in architecture firms. It's really my, you know, it, it's one of my main things that that me as now the owner of my company, you know, I, I pride myself on. I think I do a good job. I think us as a firm does a good job. But if I have to be honest with myself, you know, my opinion has changed from being the employee to now being the owner 
and now even post pandemic, right? And and you know, I, I, if I'm trying to be really super honest, right? I I I think of kind of our story at. Well, let me back up. I, I think of my my story as an employee, right? I worked at a let's say two major firms throughout my career. One was Swanky Hayden Connell, big uh, interiors firm. They also did some architecture, uh, and I would describe that culture as fun. Um, everybody had a great time and loved working there. It was sort of like work hard, play hard, um, and. Actually, I met my wife there. I know a ton of people that met their uh, spouses there. And so that's kind of the culture that that existed. And I worked at HLW, big international firm, which was more serious. And you kind of made your own way there. And almost with, and I, I don't want to be you know mean to them because it's not the case, but I loved it because I could make my own way and kind of nobody got in my way, right? But then there's others that failed at that. So in coming to Mancini, when I became the owner or one of the owners, it, it, you know, we wanted to do a combination of both, right? This fun place to work and then this, you know, kind of being able to find your own path. So we came up with obviously the, 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 the cultural values and things that we wanted to, 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 to make important. But then this entrepreneurial idea that if you had a, an idea, whether that was for technology or that was for a market sector or that was for, you know, you're a young project manager and you have this idea, we wanted to hear it, right? And we wanted to kind of, and I think that's where we've been most successful because if I'm being honest, the fun is great, but I don't think it keeps people at a firm uh, for the long for the long haul. So anyway, that's a long, long kind of intro because I know you've you've written about this, you've spoken about it a lot. And I just want to hear your take on culture the you know the values that that, that companies the, the architecture firms put out the you know the attrition I, I know you've talked about a culture deck and how, how do we do better you know as a group when it comes to culture because you are working late nights no matter what I do everybody has to work late and work hard and uh, yes we give days off yes we try to reward people but in the end it, that is our profession yeah, that's a sad state. Um, no, but it is so, wow, so much to impact in, like, in everything that you just said. So the interesting thing is, I think a lot of people, when they say the culture suffered during the pandemic, right, they are referring to, they tend to refer to all the social activities, like, you know, and I know you guys like do, like you have that one in, like genius person that does drinks right on Friday. Um, Jessica always tells me about how this and I, I always like, I was like, oh, I want to tune in, but I have yet to tune in. But anyways, it sounds amazing. Right. But of course, that is like not the same as in person. Um, but I think, you know, when people talked about the lack of culture happening during the pandemic, it was really all about kind of the, the socialization and events. Um, you know, when I think of culture, when I think of values, when I think of how they play out, especially in technology, it's it's ingrained into every single thing that we do, right? Culture is not purely social events. It's how we interact with one another. It's how we interact with our clients. It's how we decide which clients to actually pursue. Um, and, and, you know, I the other thing I say about culture and values is I can't I can't for the life of me remember a single value statement out of any architecture firm that I've worked at because I don't feel like we live in like 
a firm lives into those, right? They kind of publish them in the employee handbook. It might live on the website, but if you ask your, your staff, like, what are the values of the firm? I don't know if they can recall it, right? Um, so, but but with Slack, it's like built into everything we do. So empathy, courtesy, thriving, craftsmanship, playfulness, solidarity, um, you know, and the one of the examples that I always give is we are a software company. So, you know, every software company, software as a service company, they, they give, they do these updates, right? Like updated security patch 1.5 is usually the update. That's the bottom line. So Slacks though is like, hmm, we found that you guys were having problems when you did this. And because of that, we've gone ahead and update security patch 1.5. Like, let us know if you're like run into the situation again. But like, like for me, that's our culture showing up in a very public way to our clients. And, and that's, and that's why I think it's, like there's a there's an ability to cultivate that type of culture in a hybrid practice. Yes, culture is like maybe more easy to cult easier to cultivate in person, but I don't think we're we're losing anything, um, a piece of culture going to hybrid or, or remote or um, you know a combination. But it, it really has to be foundational to everything you do, and and you really have to live in those into those values. And I don't think architecture firms do. Yeah, so that's really interesting, especially on the value. So I'm in an organization called YPO, Young Presidents Organization, and they're very big in this organization, you know, globally on coaching, right? And then and there's YPO preferred coaches, and and there's all the different methods: the scaling up, the Rockefeller habits, the EOS. I'm sure you've heard of all of these kind of things, and. You know, we we had a coach, and I think the coach really helped us. It was years ago and really helped us kind of define who we were. But those core values that we established, and we still, you know, is very similar. And I'm being 100% honest and transparent. You know, we're the same way. We publish them. We talk about them. But we don't live by them. And yet I interviewed um, uh, someone from uh, the the one of the owners of Phillips Jeffries, or Philip Jeffries, um, wall covering. And, you know, he talked about his core values just like you did. He rattled them off and then he and he talked about how they were in every single thing that they do as a company. And so I feel like that seems to really work well for every other company except for an architecture firm. Like what's going on? <laughs> but I think it's just because like it's, I, I feel like Anything that's not project related is secondary to an architecture firm, right? Which includes all operations policies and process, unless it's driving, unless it like drives real tangible productivity. And I also think architecture firms just in general, you know, we're not, leaders in architecture firms aren't exposed to this type of, you know, there's a long conversation about, you know, additional business training in architecture school, but also, I mean, if, if you look at how leaders are brought up through architecture firms, and if your only view of leadership is those who came before you, and that's your platform for learning, things like this are not going to sneak into the profession unless you intentionally like bring it in. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, that is pretty much everyone I know in my position is, you know, we're as good as the leaders that we came from beforehand. And and we've gone out knowing that because of things like YPO and exposure into that, knowing where the weaknesses were, knowing that we don't have a business background per se, and how do we, you know, evolve ourselves to, to create something special. Um, 
in the end. So I'm I'm curious as to kind of so that's a chapter we have not yet written. So I'll uh, I'll have to follow up with you on that on how we on how we can truly implement those those values. Let's talk a little bit about before we move off the subject on the um the attrition side of things because again I I feel like. You know, I'm I, someone. Someone told me this quote a long time ago. You know, people don't leave companies; they leave leaders, and that's always stuck with me. And so, I take it very personally when somebody leaves our company. Um, I know I probably shouldn't at this point, but I do. And um, but we're in a weird time right now. Whereas in talking to many, many other architecture firms, there are so many people um, kind of leaving the profession. In general, um, uh, not necessarily to go to another firm. Do you have any insight as to kind of why that's been going on? Yeah. Well, I mean, right now, so we're in the the middle of the the Great Resignation. I want to say some people are, are calling it the reimagination too. Hmm. Um, but the Atlantic even just said so. So the, uh, it's not just architecture firms, right? So the Great Resignation is people quitting in in numbers on like not never seen before right and the atlantic literally just released an article last week saying that the the numbers of people quitting are accelerating so the the data numbers are trailing for them so that was august statistics and there's an interesting quote in there that said you know quitting used to be associated with losers and people who have like just given up but this level of quitting is a sign of a need for things to change and evolve um so, so I, I don't, I don't, yes, and like, so I guess the only comfort is that it's not have, happening just in the architecture profession, it's okay. everywhere. Um, but, you know, being somebody who has transitioned out of traditional practice, I've definitely been getting a lot more pings on my LinkedIn, you know, outreach saying like, how did you do that? I want to go into tech. What's the move? You know, what can I do outside of architecture? So I think there's just people seeking different things and different opportunities and they're they're also seeing in the news like all of these companies offering greater flexibility remote working options things that architects you know are struggling with now but like pre-pandemic it would, would have been like an absolute no so um so yeah i yeah. am it, it'll it'll and architecture firms have to adapt i think the the real takeaway there is we are no longer, um, and as as people see the value that architects can bring um, as systems thinkers, but as people see the value that architects can bring as system thinkers and more people outside the industry are beginning to hire architects, we're no longer competing with one another for talent, right? Mm -hmm. We are competing with a, a much broader, um, we're competing with everyone for yeah. talent. Yeah, absolutely. So. Absolutely. So our audience would love to get to know you a little bit better. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, growing up and your childhood, what your parents did? I grew up in Los Amos, New Mexico, which is uh, an unusual small town to grow up in. I think we have the highest number of PhDs per capita because of the lab there. Um, so small town Los Alamos means fast food joints don't survive because people want to go out and enjoy restaurants like where you have to sit down and have nice dinners. Um, it also meant that for a small town, it was incredibly diverse. 
And both, as you can imagine, both of my parents work at the lab. So my dad used to um, be a part of X Division, which is actually, um, well, actually, I'm not going to say what you guys can look that up. Um, I guess I'm not going to just say it out loud. And then um, my mom, uh, my mom actually did tech support for the lab, which is like, I can't imagine her incredible brain, but she essentially knew like she had like, I don't know, four different stations set up in her office and knew how to code and program so many different languages so she can offer technical support. Um, But uh, yeah, so that, that was kind of my childhood. And my dad always, I think, encouraged me to be a physicist because he, he has his PhD in plasma physics. Um, Then that didn't really happen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then um, I, I I don't, yeah, I don't know. I I have one sibling. Um, So I grew up, I spent I grew up there, got a soccer scholarship to go play at Drew University, which is oddly enough how I ended up at a small private liberal arts school that happened to have an architecture program. Um, I don't know how far, how far yeah, and how no, that's great. Do you no, no, to- I, I would love to hear kind of like your, your evolution through your, your education path, right? From sort of that, that architecture school to your master's and then definitely, you know, what inspired you to go back um, for, you know, the, the, the MPA and the MBA. Yeah, that's a, wow. That could be an incredibly long story. I'll try to shorten (laughs) it. Um, uh, so I think I was one of those people that like knew from the fourth grade, you know, there's, there's a handful of us that knew from a very young age, we wanted to be architects, right? Um, my story was, you know, my teacher told us to draw our dream homes and everybody drew an elevation. And I started like drawing and plan what I wanted the rooms to look like. So that's kind of my origin story there. And then I landed at Drury University, which is, I would say, was a really great environment to be in. It's not huge, right? I I went through five years of undergrad with the same 25 people. That's essentially the size of each year of the program. Um, and but it's very it's a lot more technical oriented, and I ha- always had this notion that I wanted to teach, and I wanted to learn a lot more about the theoretical side. Um, details were of never of interest to me. I should have probably keyed on that earlier in my career. Um, so I ended up going to SciArc uh, in California. So that's what brought me out to California. It was a one year post professional program. There was this interesting scenario planning studio that I had at SciArc that really has become the basis of the work that I do today. At the time, the Valley was looking at seceding from the city of LA, and we were looking at the dynamics of, of, of what, what would happen if that happened. So for instance, uh, parks and rec, most of the parks and recreational, I, that was my focus, was in in LA. So what does that mean for for the Valley and how you support that system? Other people were looking at other things um, like even garbage uh, because the Valley owns all the garbage for LA. So what does that mean for LA? Um, but it was an interesting strategic and scenario planning, um, um, which is kind of old, uh, at a large and ma- larger scale kind of what I what I do today and I I really wish again I keyed on that like that I that my love for that studio I I went into I entered the world in a bit of a dip in 2002 right um I just sought out the first job I could find was at um WD Partners doing site adaptations for Home Depots not very exciting um there are only like a few months in Alaska that you can break ground so I did learn that um, 
but then I went to work for a few other firms. I, I landed at Doggerty and Doggerty, uh, doing K through twelve university, uh, K through twelve university, and a lot of community buildings because I thought this is going to be so much better than big box. But I didn't get the opportunity. I rarely got the opportunity to talk to students, right? And I had teachers complaining to me that I moved their like they can't plug in the coffee machine <laughs> where they plugged in the coffee machine before. And I was like, no, but now you have air conditioning and you have Wi-Fi in your classroom and you didn't have that before, but never mind that. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't nearly as rewarding as I thought it was going to be because I wasn't engaging with the end users. Um, and I ultimately left. I said, mm, I had there my friend had an opening at a nonprofit organization and there was an ability, they were recruiting architects to one. Um, it was uh, public architecture, um, which has since um, sunsetted, okay. but they had a program called what was the 1%. They renamed it one plus, which they asked all of the architecture firms who signed up for this organization to give 1% of their billable hours towards the public good pro bono, which would make, if we did that, would, would make the largest pro bono design firm essentially collectively really interesting, but they were having problems finding projects to work on. So they essentially brought me on to bridge that gap. Interesting. Um, uh, and that was only ever going to be a one-year situation. So I was like, this is really interesting. I'm talking to all these nonprofit organizations. I'm not speaking their language. I'm not talking about to them about the value that they receive from architecture. How do I learn their language? And that's ultimately what drove me to business school. Um, what I very quickly discovered is the MBA is very quant focused um, for, for good reason. For me, the MPA was more, how do you quantify qualitative findings? So um, surveys and, and how do you kind of maneuver through not over only government bureaucracy where there's a lot of people that get MPAs and then go into like nonprofit or NGOs or government, but also like any politics that happen in a firm. So like a lot of organizational management training essentially. So that's how I ended up picking up the dual degree. And then I landed at MK Think, mm -hmm. um, co-leading their strategy group. Uh, and their strategy group was interestingly enough started because they felt architects are brought to the table too late. So they, we were seeking out services on both ends of traditional practice. Like where can we make money and be involved pre-traditional services and where can we make money and be involved post-traditional services? So I did that for five years and then I went to workplace consulting at brokerage, which was really tough. I don't, I would not recommend any architects go work for brokerage on the <laughs> consulting side, plenty do. Um, that was just a really tough two years for me because um, I had to, it was a lot of selling um, and selling is not my favorite thing to do. And then I landed in-house at Slack Technologies, which was wonderful because I got to get rid of all time cards. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, and then I ultimately, um, I don't, I don't have to sell anymore. Right. right. Um, so explain so, what Slack is for the audience. Cause I bet there's plenty that don't, I, I know for a fact, someone that listened to this audience or uh, listen in this, uh, to this podcast, don't know what Slack is. Can you explain what it is? Oh, I, so very simply at the, it's most basic level. Slack is a technology platform that allow people to communicate. So if you think about if you think about emails, they're really kind of silos of information that is only sent to the people who are CC'd in the email. But project development 
and, and teams does this too. I mean, let's be honest, but project development is really like, and making sure you have open, transparent communication is kind of about involving all the team as much as possible. And also giving a place where anyone who has not been a part of that team that needs to come in to substitute for any reason at any point in time can then see the history of everything that's happened. Um, but just think about how much communication is lost in email, especially yeah. if you write, like invite a new person to the party. So at a very high level, it's a it's a communication platform. Um, at a more sophisticated level, it can be your digital HQ. So Slack is really meant to sit horizontally across all of your other platforms. So for instance, um, there, there are, there's a lot of apps that work in Slack, but um, the idea is you never necessarily have to leave Slack to access all these other apps. So there's a whole bunch of backslash commands that I can do to spin up a Zoom call, to look up client information, to, um, I'm, I'm sure there's a time tracker in there. I'm glad I don't, like literally I was so happy to get rid of time cards, but like essentially you could do like a backslash command um, and, and start up all these other uh, a series of events. The other thing it can do is, um, and the most amazing thing to, it can do is like anything that you upload to a Slack channel or a project channel is it then the content within it becomes searchable too. Um, so it's not just the title of the, the PDF, it's everything within the PDF becomes searchable. Um, so it's, it's the new, like the new marketing lingo is like, it is your new digital HQ. We very much use it as our digital HQ um, and, and we've been learning a lot more about how to use it as a digital HQ because we're very much an in-person company pre-pandemic. Hmm. Interesting. And, and now, yeah, and now we're, we're calling ourselves a digital first company going forward. Have you gone back to the office as a, as a company? No, we haven't. <clears throat> okay. Um, so we are saying roughly until February, but we are... Um, we're encouraging our teams right now to create new team agreements um, at the team level that begins to look and talk about how, what is the expectation of individuals coming back into the office. And some of our teams are actually looking at a cadence more of like two to three days a month hmm. in person and the rest time, the rest of the time separately. Um, we are a global company too. So we have a lot of distributed teams. So what sure. does that mean for a team like my team? Um, and you know, only like a, a quarter of us are in San Francisco and the rest is distributed all throughout the U.S. Okay. So. And so what is your role there? <laughs> That's harder because I'm still trying to figure out my role. So um, just because uh, Salesforce acquired Slack. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm kind of running two, two roles right now. So uh, senior experience designer at Slack and then my new title over at Salesforce's uh, Senior Manager Global Operations Workplace Services. Um, but if you just look at what I was doing for Slack, it's working cross-functionally with, um, with our building and design team, but also with our biz tech team, our operations team, our people development team, um, our people operations team, which is essentially HR, um, to look at the overall our learning and development team, which is employee learning and development, but really look at the entire life cycle of employee from candidate to alumni and how do you make that experience better? So in tech, 
I know architects are going to be like, what? But in tech, um, engineers change on average every 1.75 years. So like our ability to attract and retain talent is, uh, you know, really, really like, like part, like par for the course when it comes to, to growing the business. So, so all of everything that we're doing, looking at the entire employee life cycle is really like, how do we attract and retain the best talent? And then, you know, put out the best product because of that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So when you say you interact with the the building design and construction team. What what exactly does that mean? Um, so I so historically I've set a vision around like what what um, what an office should be. So we were looking at we we had a new office that was going to go into construction pre pandemic that has since been pulled one because of acquisition and two just because we didn't actually start construction. Um, but I, I, we set out an overall vision of, of what we wanted that particular office to be um, in Dublin. And, you know, it, it was going like, um, it was a mix of our hospitality as like our EMEA HQ, essentially. Um, but really, and then I'm a part of the RFP process when it comes to hiring the architects. Okay. Um, but really, I'm just there kind of uh, making sure, and, and I and my team developed the program for the building ultimately. Okay. But the rest of it, um, we have a project manager who is amazing. So he's the one doing all the coordination on the end. A lot, like, I feel like I get to do all the fun stuff, right? I get to interview our employees. I get to figure out what should our program be. And then I just kind of leave it. I get to select the architect and I get right. to be a part of all of the, any fun design conversations I want to be a part of. Um, but I, but I, I've left kind of everything else yeah. that like to the project manager to okay. run the project itself. That sounds like a, like a fun, fun experience for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit about, um, you know, the, the, your website, the practice of architecture.com and then your podcast and the impetus behind the podcast and what you're trying to achieve with, with your podcast. Um, yeah, so the practice of architecture.com comes out of everything that I've learned, starting with being a strategist at MK Think, that we were able to charge a different rate than architects. We were providing expanded services within the, the structure of a traditional firm. Like what are the learnings that other architects can learn from that? And how can we how can we begin to take back all the things that we gave away or create new services in places that we aren't really functioning right now? So that was the basis of practice of architecture. And it started out being more of like a, a collector of ideas and what I was seeing out there. And it's become a lot more hands-on. There's a community associated with it. You can be a part of the practice of architecture lab to join forward-thinking architects. Um, we're releasing courses and releasing AIACEUs, um, looking that's specifically looking to expand the practice of architecture. Um, and for, for me, Practice Disrupted, the podcast is really just another way to elevate that conversation that we were having, right? It's just another medium. Um, a lot of what uh, we talk about isn't dissimilar from the, the business operations and policies that I was writing about in the contract mm -hmm. magazine article. It, it's just like, it's a new forum. Not everyone is reading as much these days or picking up a magazine. So um, the podcast is a new forum to kind of deliver upon that. 
and bring in real world examples of case studies of architects doing really interesting things like like Jessica Sheridan and Mancini and the tool set you guys have there. Uh-huh. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so so that that was um, that's kind of it's, it's just a way to kind of expand expand the voice. But now practice of architecture is doing a lot more kind of one on one consulting and coaching and helping other architects along, but also creating a community of people that are forward thinking. Um, I, I, uh, I, I was surprised by how many of us there are out there. And I think we can do more collectively if we band together. I totally agree. I, I mean, I, I know I associate with a lot of other architects that want to advance the profession, you know, and want to advance it not only from the cultural side or from our work side, but uh, the business side, but from the technology side. And I think you, you said it perfectly earlier, you do get consumed by the project, right? And and in the end, at the end of the day, the project and the client are what kind of take over Everything else, it all gets kind of shoved to the side. And and us at Mancini, we we've really said no, that's not going to happen. We're pushing the technology side forward. It has to remain number one, even during the pandemic. You know, I know a lot of companies kind of gave up on any initiatives that they had just to survive, which I don't blame them for. I get it a hundred percent. But we made that commitment to note we're sticking with the technology and the developers that were hired, and we're not going anywhere. And that yes, that's unbillable work, but it's going to, you know, help us in the future. And I think more companies need to do that. I think your podcast kind of helps with that dialogue as well. And so, what what other technologies do you see? Um, coming to help our profession or being developed, you know, with our profession in mind or being even developed in our profession, other than things like VR and 3D printing and AR and, uh, you know, artificial intelligence? Is there, are there other things that, that you see kind of coming to light? Yeah. Sorry for all this background noise. I think the kids just got home. Um, well, actually, I know the kids, like, I guess not, I think they, they are obviously home now. Um, uh, so I just gave a, I just gave a keynote not too long ago, really looking at um, what Web 3.0 is, right? And there is definitely a level of AI and machine learning built into that, and as well as VR. Um, and and we, I, I guess you could go down the Facebook hole of, what's their new name again? Meta. Yeah, Meta. The meta, the meta, actually, uh, 3.0 actually is really about the the metaverse. Um, if you want to go down that hole, but I do, I you know, there's there's, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer this. There's even though I'm in technology, there's a lot of VC funding that is being poured into the building space, like more so than ever before, mm-hmm. right? And they're looking to increase efficiencies in processes. They are looking to increase efficiencies in how they deliver materials. Um, so, so I think, um, and and I don't, you know, they're coming to they're coming to to the game with a lot more resources than we have <laughs> ourselves as firms to put in. So, I think if 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 you want, like, so what tech? I mean, I I don't think it's any like big thing. I think it's a lot of little things that are going to evolve the profession quickly. 
Okay. That makes sense. So, uh, so um, like one of the things that that I was really keen on on probably even two, three years ago was the fact that I, I wanted to automate certain parts of what we do. And while I still say there's plenty of you know things that can be automated, I've kind of pulled back from that a little bit. Um, there is, yeah, I want to automate, you know, the the clicking of buttons to create renderings and all that sort of stuff. But I, at one point, I wanted to really, you know, kind of generate a bunch of floor plans without having to really think about it. And the more that we went down that road, the the more we realized that really wasn't all that valuable. That, you know, the the two or three really good solutions we kind of already knew as we developed something, right? And yeah, there's the technology that can help us visualize it, pull it forward, whatever that might be. But there was still that, you know, that um, the human interaction, right? The listening. You know, you got to listen to the client. You got to listen to what what everyone is talking about around you. What they're saying about the the while they're emoting about a space. Well, hey, this doesn't feel right. And so, okay, it doesn't feel right. What does that mean? How do we correct it? And I, I've kind of shied away from well, we're going to do three hundred versions of your floor plan in like a second. You know, I do think that's cool, but I'm not sure there's huge value in that. What is your what's your opinion on that? So that's something I can definitely talk to. So, I mean, I don't think that piece of that human piece is going to go away, right? But there are companies out there like TestFit.io that is doing really interesting things with with the low-hanging fruit. Like um, there's only so many different iterations of a parking lot, honestly, that you want to draw. So so that's that's I feel like that's an easy place to to automate. And if they can spit out a hundred iterations in the same time that it takes you to spit out one iteration, and then you have the ability to pick which hundred you want to go forward with. I think like yeah, that, that saves time, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. There's no doubt in that. Um, so for me, for me, when we look at computer automation, I think it's, I think it's just that, like, I think there will continue to be tools that let that spits out so many more derivations than we could ever do that at, at a human pot, like human, that's humanly possible. But then it's going to take our knowledge and knowing of the client and knowing what they're really looking for to look through all those der- derivations to then pull in what the scenarios are and move forward with the right one. So that's kind of where I think that that speed and process and automation is going to like really be impactful to design moving forward. Um, in in that sense, I, I do think, you know, they're, they're just, Oh, like, I, I think, I feel like if I sat down with Bola, like she and I could come up with like just financial system automations, right. Yeah. That makes her life easier and your project accountant life's easier. So there, I think there's things like that, that we can begin to automate. Um, there's there's automation lessons that architecture firms can can steal from other industries that we haven't done right like i i don't know of a lot of architecture firms who are able to run a a, a very good marketing funnel right because we're of the belief that so much of the work that we do is is um relationship driven but still there has to be a starting point like how do you make that new introduction mm-hmm. to that person and how do you scale that um so so though i feel like there's those type of automations that are that are going to creep in um that can can actually like the firms that embrace it and you know i've 
the tool belt and just kind of what you guys are doing with VR is really interesting um, because I, because that like what you guys are like enabling chefs to virtually cook in a kitchen and understand like where their line of sight is like being like, is not going to work for them. And and just saying this shelf needs to be higher. Like, like that in itself is um, it's not automation, but it's definitely bringing speed to the process with which you used to do things at. Absolutely. There's no drawing you can do that says when I'm, you know, hunched over a, a stove, what I can see, you know, on the other side of a space. Right. And that absolutely that, that, and yeah, you're right. It's not automation, but boy, does it get you to a decision a whole hell of a lot faster, especially if it has been built. You know, if it's built and now you're hunching over the stove and you can't see where you need to see, now you know you're you're totally that, and screwed, that change so. order is so much more expensive too <laughs> at that point. Exactly, exactly. So, last question, uh, kind of bringing it all back around. Uh, if you had to do it differently as far as your career is concerned, um, what might you have changed thus far? I don't know if I, I mean, that's an interesting question because I'm always one of those people that like believe in moving forward rather than looking back. Like I, I ended up here because of every, the culmination of everything. I think if I were to give advice to anyone, I, I would be like, I think I would have gotten here faster if I, if I took cues and, and looked back at like the work that I really enjoyed doing. Mm-hmm. Like it took me a little bit longer to figure out what was my path forward, Um like I really love that studio, um, and about scenario planning, and it was like engaging. It was really about under like taking a lot of different data from a lot of different unique sources, under like doing stakeholder engagements, like talking with the people and the like understanding like the users and stuff. If I keyed into that sooner, I think I would have gotten here faster. So you know, just be aware of kind of what brings you joy and what gets you excited. Um, and then it's, it's just so much easier to follow your passion that way. Um, but yeah, that's great. Well, well, thank you so much for being my guest here on the anti-architect podcast to see and read more, um, obviously about Evelyn, uh, you, you have your own website was evelynlee.com, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the practice of architecture.com, and make sure you check out her podcast, Practice Disrupted, um, pretty popular podcast on all of the, the channels. So thank you again so much for for your time and, and having this conversation. It was great. 